Um, hello and welcome to episode 66 of Tea or Books. I'm Rachel. I'm Simon. And today we are going to be doing a topic which we can't quite, well, I can't quite decide how to phrase. Um, domestic books versus worldly books. Does that work? Yeah, sure. Well, I, I don't really know what it, it is, but it could work. Uh, <laughs> we'll see. Um, and then we're in the latter half of the podcast we're going to be comparing two short story collections which isn't something we've done before is it i don't think it is no no first time um which are the devastating boys collection of stories by elizabeth taylor and the collection i don't can't remember what your one is called but mine is called ivy grip steps and other stories by elizabeth bowen but that's the american title what's it's uh the demon lover and other stories the demon lover and other stories which is a much better title i think um so yes. but First of all, Simon, how are you and what are you reading? I'm good, thanks. So I've I've just been, well, in fact, I've, um, a, a week ago I came back from a week in Northern Ireland with my brother, which was lovely. Okay. Uh, and it didn't rain the whole time we were there, which was extraordinary. Or if it did, it must have been at night or something. Because, yeah, we had, su- sun, well, sunny days, maybe not. Some were sunny days, some cloudy days, but we took it. <laughs> and, um, yeah, up by the North Coast for half a week, it just, which is so beautiful. And then in Belfast for half a week, which um, is less beautiful, but has some good things to do in it. I, I, I think it was the biggest come down in view that I've ever had in my life. So, <laughs> so, so my bedroom in where we were really close to Giant's Causeway looked out over fields and to the coast. And it was it was Gorgeous. maybe the best view I've ever had. My view from my bedroom in Belfast was the multi-story car park of a blood transfusion unit. So, <laughs> <laughs> not quite the same. <laughs> not quite, no. But, you know. Equ- equally um, beneficial for the world, I'm sure. <laughs> People need to transfuse blood. Indeed. So, uh, was um, did you stay in Airbnb places? Yes, we did. Yeah, um, I picked the one <laughs> on the north coast. Then I let Colin pick the one in Belfast. He was quite keen to spend some time. He, he likes being in cities, and I like being in the countryside. So we compromised. That's nice. Look at you, lovely brothers, compromising for each other. No, we're, we're like a storybook. You really are. <laughs> Um, and the best book I read was I was there. I read four books whilst I was there, in fact. Goodness. I know. I, I was, because I've been there a few times before and I'm probably going to go a few times again, I didn't feel like I had to soak in every moment so I could just sit and read. No. Um, and yeah, the best one was Pigs in Heaven by Barbara Kingsolver, which is brilliant. Yes, I read your review. Yeah. It sounded uh, amazing. Yeah, and it makes me wish I had not got rid of the Barbara Kingsolver novels I had when I moved house. <laughs> I got, basically, I kept the shortest one. It's like, well, if I like this, I can buy back the long ones. So I guess that's where I'm going to be now, <laughs> buying back the long ones. Yeah. yeah I've only read cool. The Poisonwood Bible, so I'd be interested in reading more. Yeah, I mean, I, I really love The Poisonwood Bible. I mean, obviously, I had misgivings about it from a Christian perspective, but... Um, in terms of the story, I very much enjoyed it. Yeah, I I can't remember if we've t- talked about it before. I had misgivings from the Christian perspective, but also, I think, from a writing perspective, I, I found the man annoyingly just everything was wrong with him. It wasn't like... He didn't seem a particularly nuanced or believable character to me. He was just an ogre. Whereas it's all the women in it I found much more believable. Yes. Um, but I had previously read The Bean Trees by, by King Silver, so I knew that I, that I did like her, so I persevered. <laughs> and this is uh, a sequel to The Bean Trees, although you don't have to have read The Bean Trees to enjoy this, as evidenced by the fact that I remember nothing at all about The Bean Trees and still really <laughs> loved it. But what, I've, what I'm currently reading, uh, well, in fact, I've just been reading The Cross of Christ by John Stott, which is one of those books yeah. I, I bought as, a, as an undergraduate and intended to read and never did, so I'm finally reading it. Do you ever read that? Uh, 
I haven't actually. No, is it good? Yeah, it's quite um, heavy, I guess. Or well, not heavy, but like you know, it's it's sort of it's all theology, I guess. So it's it's not like a Christian living book. And like, here's advice for how to how to live a Christian life. It's more like here is lots of complicated theology. But I mean, written in a, in a pr- an accessible way. But it's not something I just pick up for a you know quick read. Um, so yeah. I'm alternating that with Saki's short stories, which are very different. <laughs> um, have you read Saki? Uh, I don't know what I never have, and I keep seeing um, books of his in shops and thinking, "Well, Simon likes Saki. I would buy that," and then yeah. never get around to it. Well, I'm reading the Chronicles of Clovis, which has just been reprinted by Michael Warmer, and it's introduced by A. M. Milne. So I was, you know, I, um, well, I already knew I loved Saki, but. The introduction from AML has swayed me still further, and they're, yeah, very funny. Um, I think you particularly would like his novel, The Unbearable Bassington, so if you see that, I would grab it. Okay, I'll keep an eye out yeah. for it. Um, and what have you been reading, and how are you? I'm very well, thank you. <laughs> um, I have been, I'm actually doing something that I don't enjoy at the moment, which is that I'm reading two books at the same time, um, one for us and one for my school book groups, which I started thanks to much desire on the behalf of my colleagues, who then have all very successfully managed to keep dropping out. So So is it with children or just with other teachers? No, with other teachers. So I'm hoping that there'll be some more takers um, this month, because last month hardly anyone showed up. Um, But we are reading The Silent Companions by um, Laura Purcell, Purcell, um, which is, it's one of those neo-Victorian gothic thrillers, uh, that are very ubiquitous at the moment. I mean, I'm, I'm not not enjoying it. Um, I've, but it's, it's going down a a very well-worn path that I, at the moment, I'm feeling a little bit like I don't really know why we need another one of these novels. it's it's trying to be Sarah Waters, but not as eloquently, which is a rather wicked thing to say. But um, <laughs> no, I know what you mean. Yeah, and particularly because obviously you know quite a lot about the Victorian period and Victorian literature. I'm sure you're you're spotting all the differences and things. <laughs> yes, and also there's an attempt to write in a 19th century style, which you know isn't entirely stick to my ear. It's um, a dangerous game, isn't it? It is. I do sometimes think. Do you know what? Just don't bother. Yeah, you got to go. I think you, if you commit to it being modernised, at least the, I mean, people might not like. Some people might not like it, but at least the people who are okay with it will get something consistent. Whereas if you do, yeah, period wrong. It's like why, why write this at all? I don't know. Well, yeah, and I mean, I'm sorry, but it's not 19th century to just occasionally chuck in a few words, is it? No. <laughs> so, um, but I mean, it's not bad by any means. I mean, I'm still, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that the story will. Um, will improve but it just feels a bit predictable at the moment but i'm halfway through so i'm prepared to be to be uh, taken by surprise by some sort of clever twist at some point if that arises That'd but be I'm good, sure. yeah. yeah we'll see <laughs> um but yeah that's and then i'm still halfway through little um which is edward carey's book about uh, mary Tussaud, who we spoke about last time um and i'm still very much enjoying it it's just it's very long but lovely but long Yes, I have now finished it, so I'm feeling very smug. Right, as you should. <laughs> um, and yes, more and on on that. Yes, I mean, we will be next time um, 
discussing that with another one, but I'll save that to the end because we yeah. don't need to talk about that now, do we? Keep people listening right to the end. Uh, yeah. <laughs> suspense, suspense. <laughs> Shall we um, discuss our first topic then, which was decided on about half an hour ago. This is how you know we just like to really fly by the seat of our pants on this podcast. Because we were um, briefly going to do short stories until we realised we'd already done that in episode 29. Yeah. So if you want to hear us talk about short stories, check out episode 29. <laughs> I was going to say to you, well, if we can't remember, surely no one else does either. But um, nonetheless, we are <laughs> going to do things properly and not repeat ourselves. So we're, I was thinking about um, book sets in the domestic interior uh, as opposed to novels set in the wider on the wider world stage, I suppose. And... What made me think about this is I remember having a discussion once with somebody about Jane Austen and they said, oh, yes, but what's all she ever writes about is women having tea and, you know, falling in love with men. And it's just nothing happens. And I remember saying back to them, yes, but that's in most of our lives, nothing more than that happens. So why is that insignificant? Why would we say that most of our lives are insignificant? You'd never say that about yourself. But, I mean, how many of us go off and fight in wars or, you know, time travel or end up living on Mars or doing <laughs> any of the crazy things we read about in books? And um, so I I think it's it's an interesting topic to think about in terms of, what type of books do we find we gravitate towards and do we gravitate towards books that echo our own lives or do we try and and find books that educate us about you know bigger problems or different people who have jobs like for example books about kings or politicians or whatever that that take us onto more political topics um so yeah, yeah. um and Thank you for explaining it a bit more because I didn't really know what you meant, but it sounds good. <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I remember the first time I heard the argument with Austin that uh, why didn't she mention the Napoleonic Wars? You know, she can't be serious if she's not mentioned mm-hmm. them. And even at the time when I was about 15 or something, I just thought that's such a bizarre line of argument because like, why should she? You know, she's, she's chosen her, you know, two inches of ivory or whatever she said, although I think she was saying that slightly tongue in cheek, but, um, yeah, you, you don't have to write about everything that's happening at the time that you're writing. Like if someone wrote a novel now but didn't mention Brexit, for example, set in, set in Britain, I think mm. you could still write a novel set in Britain that doesn't mention Brexit. And of course you could write many that did. And I'm sure we'll get the, a slew of Brexit novels over the next few years. But um, In fact, didn't Annie Smith write one that was sort of Brexit themed? Probably. Yeah. I mean, they're not really my cup of tea. Well, no. So uh, I think everyone who's listened to more than one episode of this will think those guys are definitely going to pick the domestic area. <laughs> and we, who knows? You could be right. But, <laughs> but, but certainly a lot more of that variety came to my mind. So I was trying to think what might fall into the second category for me. And I was thinking, um, I was trying to think of authors who did both of these sorts of things and which ones I preferred. And the first one who came to my mind was E.M. Forster. Um, a sort of passage to India versus Howard's End dichotomy, if you will. Um, mm. I don't, I don't know if that's quite fair because it's not like there's nothing domestic about a passage to India. But in those cases, I certainly 
find find him a lot more enjoyable when he's looking at various households in England and it's all about the household dynamics and the intra-household dynamics, I guess, rather than... I mean, Apache to India obviously is set in India, um, and more than that, it's about... It's sort of issue-driven, I guess. It's sort of... It's about race relations. It's about, you know, what happened in the caves, that sort of thing. It's And, it, and it's, it's dealt with through a... Um, yeah, some sort of domestic lens, I guess. But I, I prefer him when he is in London drawing rooms, I guess. Because I didn't particularly like has, um, a room with a view either. And I mean, this all goes back to my, my dislike of British people writing about their trips abroad. <laughs> <laughs> so I was trying to think of other examples. But um, what came to your mind first? Well, I mean, I was thinking about really um, Tolstoy. Oh, okay. Which, for me, I found, for example, I find him really interesting because he kind of writes about both at the same time. So, particularly in War and Peace, you've got, obviously, the wars going on uh, in the male side of the novel and then the more female sides of the novel, you've got uh, what's happening back at home. And... I remember when I was reading War and Peace, I've read it twice, and both times I just remember flicking through the <laughs> war stuff to get back to the interest, the stuff that interested me, which was the, um, the emotional lives of, of the, of the characters and the, the kind of not necessarily romantic interest. I mean, I wasn't necessarily interested in that, but the kind of, well, I suppose in some ways, political wranglings that were going on between them and their relationships between each other. Because I think when people talk about politics, um, they invariably mean, you know, to do with political parties and people's beliefs in terms of how to run countries and what have you. But actually, there's a lot of politics in the social relationships as well, the way that you deal with people and the way that you skirt around issues and you try and um, get what you want out of people, essentially. Um, and that kind of domestic politics is what interests me. And it's the mm-hmm. same in um, Anna Karenina. You know, you've got lots of, of wider issues being discussed, the role of women um, in society, you know, the, the basically the restricted way of life in, in Russian society at the time, in the upper class society. So you've got that kind of commentary. But then you've also got the the very real emotional life of Anna Karenina and um, that of her husband as well. Um, and again, I wasn't necessarily as interested in the the world around them. I was more interested in the world between them. Um, and I found that quite interesting because I actually had initially read the books because I wanted to learn more about Russia and Russian history. Um, and actually, it was quite interesting that I ended up not really being interested in that part at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think um, for me something that I struggle with with books that are are quite political and quite um representative of of wider world issues is that they get they date so incredibly quickly um so there are for example I mean I've always find a way to get back to the 19th century um (laughs) a lot of 19th century novels that are very um political so for example um Disraeli's novels um that aren't read now because they feel very much of their time because mm, they're making mm. references to very specific um, people and events that people just aren't conversant in now. Um, and I think a good exception to that rule um, is Anthony Trollope. And... Just to say ah. that, 
Well, go ahead if you'd like to. You carry on, you go on. Yeah, so I haven't actually read the Palliser novels, so you might be able to speak about that, but um, I have read a few of the Barsich, the um, Chronicles of Barsisha, uh, which are, um, as you know, all about the clergy. And I've known several people who say, like, oh, I'm not interested in Victorian clergy, I don't think I'd want to read those, and think, well, I'm not particularly interested in the Victorian clergy. What makes that those books so brilliant is that he's taking this very, very niche political slash... Um, I guess it, you know, it basically is political, even if it's in the church. It's the politics of the church. Um, mm. This very niche issue, which is about salaries or something. I can't even who owns tithe cottages or something. I can't even remember what it is. But the way, because he does it entirely as through character and through the interactions of different characters and the lovely, lovely Septimus Harding, <laughs> and it's it's all about it's it's it's, it's as though it were. Um, like a, a squabble within a house or it's, it's made to feel like a domestic matter and the way people re- respond to it is very human and very um, understandable to us now as even if we don't have the first clue what any of the ins and outs of the political issue mean because of the way Trollope mm. does it. Um, I don't know if the same is true of the Palliser novels but um, I would assume, yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean the Palliser novels are great in that they're, they're obviously about politics but they're not about politics if you see what i mean they're about the people um and the politics is kept incredibly generic um i mean it's mm-hmm. it's not like other novels where you know literally people are named and particular policies are named and all that sort of thing that so you you feel like it could just be applicable to any period which is one of the most amazing things about Trollope. i mean i read the way we live now last year and i was just blown away by how it could have been written yesterday with the types of machinations mm-hmm. going on and the swindling of fraud and um, all that kind of thing. It's, it's just, I mean, it still feels really fresh. And I think because he's not making specific references, it still feels like, um, and, it, and again, it's, that is interesting because it's a novel of the world, but at the same time, it still goes back to the home. All of yeah, the, yeah. Like Trollope's, most of the action in Trollope's novels is not actually in the offices, in the boardrooms. It's when the men go home and they have to explain what's happened to their wives or they have to hide what's happened from their wives um, and children. And you have all of the tension in the household and it's the, the rippling out of what happens in the outside world into the domestic interior and the enormous waves of effect that it causes that creates the tension within the novel. Um and Trollope is, is a wonderful example and probably actually the best example, I think, um, certainly in English literature, of, of being able to straddle that line, really, between exterior and interior. Mm-hmm. Um, and to go back even further, I think Shakespeare is brilliant at, or can be brilliant at that. I mean, it's not, <laughs> yes. saying Shakespeare is brilliant is hardly a, a new thought, but um, <laughs> when, when you were talking about... Uh, War and Peace, I, I was thinking of Coriolanus and, and Richard III, both of which I found the war sections quite boring, And the, but, the, but these sections where it's, you know, the women folk reflecting on the impact it's having on their lives or people back at home, that bit I found, maybe it was just the productions I saw. Well, in fact, one of them I, I read Coriolanus and I saw Richard III, but particularly, particularly the production I saw of Richard III, it felt so much more alive and vibrant when it was uh, the women talking about what an impact their, their you know, machinations are having on their lives um and i think that's why we are much more likely to see his later plays where he where he does has that sophisticated way of taking together the big world events and the 
minutiae of a domestic life lived alongside that, like in Macbeth or Hamlet. But, and we don't see Titus Andronicus as much, where it's much less, you know, it's a lot less about the individual's um, human lives, I guess. So I guess it is, you know, the great writers are the ones, or the great, the great writers who, who stay classics are the ones who manage to find something essential about humanity and write about it. And I think domestic lives maybe have changed a lot, or a lot more recognisable perhaps than than very specific political moments and so it's only the truly great authors who can write about specific political moments and make them still feel um, vibrant and, and vital today like To Kill a Mockingbird for example another one obviously race is still an issue but, but that particular moment in race relations um, how, that has changed at least to a certain extent but that novel still feels so alive because it is about the humanity of the people involved Yes, I think. Yeah, I think the novels that are that do speak about wider world issues and that are very much of their time, in terms of of looking at a particular issue or a particular um, kind of political environment, manage to that those ones that that do last the course of time manage to do so because at their heart they've got people. Um, who are everyman or, you know, who are also dealing with their own personal struggles and they have qualities that we can relate to. So I've just um, been studying Cry the Beloved Country by Alan Payton with my mm. um, GCSE class at school and it's a novel, for people who don't know, it's set um, in the late 1940s in South Africa, so just before apartheid becomes official. Um and it's a story about race in South Africa and about the brokenness of South Africa. But essentially, it's also the story of, of two men who are also broken, um, who come to understand and love each other through their brokenness. And they are sort of a metaphor for South Africa as a whole. Um, and the novel works out. I mean, obviously, it still works in the sense that, that, that it's still very much an issue in South Africa anyway. But in terms of it works outside of its immediate political significance to the people reading it when it first came out because it's a story of, of two very human people who make a connection and learn from it and it's a beautiful beautiful story um i mean my kids keep laughing at me because i keep like tearing up every time we talk about <laughs> it in class like oh here she goes again but I can't, it's just, it's so moving because it's not just about race, it's about humanity. And I think it's those sorts of books that can truly touch you and teach you um, so much because they don't just try and educate you about an issue, they try and educate you about yourself at the same time. Um, and I think actually people miss a lot by saying, particularly female novelists are accused a lot of the time about not uh, engaging with the world and not engaging with with what's uh, current and you know retreating to you know boring stuff or or kind of you know unimportant stuff like romance and um you know friendships and things like that but the reality is that is what all of us can relate to and connect to mm -hmm. and just because a book is about romance or about a friendship or about a house or you know something like that doesn't mean that it's it lacks significance because actually I think that that's opens up a wider debate about well what do we find to be of significance and what do we value 
Yeah, um, and I've I found similar sorts of things you're talking about with Peyton in two different book group books that I've read recently, or rather in one of them and not in the other. Uh, so we've done two books recently about very specific moments in history, in recent history, both about civil wars. So one was about the Argentinian Civil War, a book called Kamchatka by Marcelo Figueres, and then one was about the Mozambican Civil War called Sleepwalking Land by Miyakuto. And I really liked Kamchatka, and I didn't like sleepwalking land as much at all, I didn't particularly like it at all. And in some ways they were quite similar, they were both from the perspective of children who didn't really understand what was going on, we were learning about it through their sort of lack of understanding. But I think um, Miyakuta's book was so much more immersed in the re- in references to um, the Civil War, and indeed, it was also magical realism, which <laughs> added a layer of confusion for me. But, um, and we were very lucky that someone in our book group is Mozambican and was able to explain to us uh, all these references that we weren't getting. But I, but I found that was sort of a barrier that I would have to go away and learn all about the Mozambican Civil War before I could properly appreciate this novel. And maybe I just wasn't the right mm. audience for that novel. Whereas Kamchatka, I think partly because the child's a bit younger and he doesn't really understand what's going on so we've got the same level of ignorance as him well I had the same level of ignorance as him a lot of people know a lot more about the Argentinian Civil War than I do but um, yeah, it meant that the things he was seeing were the essential things of you know family and fear and all these things that it's easy to latch latch onto as a reader because they're universal Um, and I think that for me that was that helped elucidate how I feel about books being about specific political moments or specific historical moments and how I how I do respond well to them being treated or not, as the case may be. To flip it over, I know we are both fond of domestic novels in general. Are there any you can think of where, you, where it hasn't worked for you? Where the, I think a lot of people find domestic novels boring and they, and they shouldn't be, but are there any that you have found boring? Hmm. I don't think so. No, I just I find domestic novels so fascinating i love reading about people's relationships to their homes and Mm. to their families and to their friends and the minutiae of everyday life i find endlessly fascinating different ways in which people choose to live their lives i don't see what could be of more interest to read about i particularly like i mean we've talked about this before i particularly enjoy books about um interiors full stuff about homes and the process of choosing homes and and how we live in our homes and how we um how we feel about our homes and how our homes make us feel mm-hmm. um and that India has always interested me far more than you know a book about a job or a book about um a war or something like that those things feel very unengaging to me which i mean maybe they shouldn't but <laughs> that's how i feel yeah i, I mean i think i'm very similar. There's only been a handful I could could think of. I'm not going to bring up Otadalak again because I should give it another <laughs> chance before I use it as my whipping boy. But um, <laughs> when when my book group read The Masters by C.P. Snow, that, I mean it's not domestic in the usual sense because it's set in a college. But I was really expecting to find that interesting because essentially all about the the small details of a college community and who will be the next master and i found it unbearably boring (laughs) i didn't know why um other than well i mean lots of people in book group loved it so i just couldn't see where the momentum was i think that's the thing i won't find it boring as long as there is nuance and there is momentum it's got to be something that pulls the reader through and that doesn't have to be anything more you know exciting than what who's going to 
redecorate the spare bedroom or whatever. That's, you know, as long as there's some, <laughs> something <laughs> there. Yeah. Um, and I do wonder about people who choose normally the very politically or, you know, we talked about war last time, but, or recently, um, those sorts of books. I assume that they prefer the ones which also have the human, human detail and human nuance rather than just, you know, otherwise they'd read a historical, uh, well, a non-fiction book. They just read it. And even those I increasingly, um, narrative non-fiction, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. I just can't imagine sitting down to read something that's just, you know, a list of different people who did different political things or a list, because essentially then you're just reading a list of treaties. Well, I mean, I think really our choice is, is quite clear, isn't it? Just want to put one more mention in for a political moment that was done really well, which was the Watergate scandal uh, redone in a nunnery by Muriel Spark and the Abbess of Crew. So there you go. That's a great way to write about a political moment. Put I it in a nunnery. <laughs> but yes, I am going to go yeah. for the domestic scene. Yeah, so no one is surprised, I'm sure. <laughs> yes. But there we are. But do let us know if you could persuade us otherwise, or would try to. I suspect not if you're listening to this yeah. podcast. <laughs> no. And now, you know, seamlessly really moving into our our next part of our discussion, um, two novelists um, known very much for their books about the domestic interior mm. and domestic lives. And rather than looking at their novels, we've chosen to look at two collections of short stories. And... Um, both of them, actually, well, Elizabeth Bowen, um, in the preface, I don't know if you had a preface in yours, but I did. No. Um, she was explaining in the preface, these, these stories were published first in 1945, and they are books, uh, sorry, stories that were published all during, uh, World War Two. So, um, they're all very, they're all connected by the fact that she was writing them during the war and they're all even if they don't directly mention the war they're kind of a response to the war that was her she said in the preface in the book my edition of the book that when she was putting the collection together she realized that even the ones that didn't mention the war she could very much feel the way the war had had affected her through the stories so um that was really yeah yeah that's interesting yeah uh, whereas the Elizabeth Taylor stories, I'm not sure how much involvement she had in choosing whether those ones were particularly, she'd said, I want those together or. That's, yeah, I have no idea. They, they yeah. were published in 1972, but I don't know what period they cover before that as well, or if it was just a latter day thing. Yeah. When did she die? I don't know. Okay, I'm not sure. But I mean, the, we've both read it in the enormous Virago collected edition mm, of stories, mm. uh, which contains all of her short stories. And it's a very large volume, actually. Um, and I feel could have been more nicely published. Um, yeah, well, yes, it's, it's wonderful to have them all. <laughs> but yes, it is not something I could take in my bag to work. No. And, and so, I mean, I, I often read books simultaneously, as you know. I made yes. the mistake of reading these two simultaneously, so I'm, I'm not <laughs> sure I'm even going to remember which Elizabeth wrote which stories. But yeah. <laughs> I read and, them separately, um, and I read the Bowen first, um, expecting to, to enjoy them more, and then read the Elizabeth Taylor second. Um, and I think actually something that's, that's, that is worth saying here is that um, Elizabeth Taylor 
the sh- like, as I say, the short story volume is enormous because she wrote a huge amount mm-hmm. of short stories. Um, Elizabeth Bowen also wrote a fair amount of short stories, but I don't think anywhere near the yeah. same amount. And she seemed to write short stories um, while she was writing novels as a kind of, oh, I better dash out a few stories <laughs> um, rather than, I don't think she she saw them. I mean, I, I could be wrong here, but from my interpretation of what I've read about her, I don't think she saw short stories as being something that she necessarily enjoyed or took wanted to take time over perfecting, whereas Elizabeth Taylor seemed to take great care and pleasure over writing short stories in a way that was more deliberate. But I'm not, I'm prepared to be corrected on that by anyone who's an expert in either one. Well, before we look at them in more detail, I'll take a, if I may, a quick little break. So I asked people on our Patreon if they read short stories very often. So yes, you can support the blog at patreon.com forward slash tea books, where there are various different rewards and things. Many thanks to those who do, including Elizabeth, Randy, yeah. Gracie, and Maria, who get the special thanks level. But, but yes, three people replied um, to my question. Um, and it seems like nobody's particularly keen to read short stories. But so Sandy, Elizabeth, and Lindsay all replied. Um, Sandy recommends Jane Gardam's short stories, which I have not read. Have you? Oh, no, I've read one either. of her novels. I read God on the Rocks, but I've not read her short stories. Um, and then, yeah, both Elizabeth and Lindsay talk about short story collections, as in, oh, anthologies, I guess. So, um, they recommend, um, oh no, sorry, that's not true. Elizabeth talks about Maladies by uh, John Lahiri. Uh, Lindsay talks about various Virago um, collections, including Christmas-related anthology. Um, and Do you enjoy Christmas a Christmas short story? Yeah. Apparently there's yeah. a whole Christmas collection of Louisa May Alcott short stories. Indeed, yeah. I was not aware of that. That's yeah. exciting. There's no title there, but I'm sure it'll be easy to find if you, if yeah. you Google that. So yes, I think people tend, in general, not to read short stories, or a lot of people don't read them, and I don't read them enormously often. Um and indeed, on a podcast, no. it may be very difficult to discuss, <laughs> but we can but try. Um, so yes, both these authors are people that I have loved, but sometimes but I have to be in the right mood for them. Um, I've, yeah, right. they're, they're on that tier where sometimes I can just read it and it just washes over me and it doesn't quite work. But, um, but sometimes if I, maybe if I'm a bit more careful... Um, so if you can hear my cat snoring in the background, he's very, <laughs> very relaxed. <laughs> but, yeah, I was wondering what that sort of rumbling was. I thought it's got to be a Hargreaves-related noise yeah, there. He's asleep on my lap and he's having a little snore. It's not my stomach or anything. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> yeah, so let's talk about one of them first, which you you, t- you started with the Bowen, you said. I did. I was very intrigued. I love Elizabeth Burns' novels, as everybody who reads my blog or listens to this probably knows. Um, I find her an absolutely incredible writer who is just a master of prose, and her books are always very dark and menacing beneath the surface, and I, I love that element of her work. Um but I was quite surprised by how much I didn't enjoy the stories. Oh, really? Uh, okay. Yes. Um, what, what didn't I, work? It was a combination of things. Firstly, I felt that most of the stories were 
so obtuse. I didn't really understand what the point of them was. Mm. Um, I was struggling to connect with the characters and to really understand what she was trying to say through the stories. They felt very unfinished, like uh, she'd had an, an idea or concept that she wanted to to look at, but she hadn't managed to, to work it through. And for me personally, I feel after having read these stories that she is a novelist and she is not a short story writer. I don't think she's very good at writing short stories. I don't think she's very good at building a complete world in a small number of pages. Um, they felt very unfinished, very sketchy, um, very much like, I don't know. I'm not, I, for someone who's such a brilliant writer, they just didn't convince me or compel me in any way. I didn't feel there was only one story that I really enjoyed and thought that worked really well as a standalone story. Which um, one? I am uh, consulting my coffee to find out <laughs> whether I can actually name it. Well, I'll, I'll talk yeah. for a bit, shall I, while you're looking yeah, it up? Yeah, I, I found it. Oh, you could go for it, yeah. No, no, I said, oh, I'll sorry. find it. Well, again, oh, sorry. carry on. Yeah, I felt... Um, like it was almost impressionistic writing, like she was sort of writing the outlines of people and the outlines of a story, not in terms of it just being an early draft, but just in terms of, it was almost like she was describing the shadows of the people in the story. And you could, you, I was trying to piece together what, what was essential from that. And, and like an impressionist painting, if somehow, if I, if I step back for some of them, it all it cohered and worked really well. Um, the some I re- the one I liked most was um, the inherited clock. Oh, do you remember right. that one? Yes, I do. Which is essentially about an inherited clock, and it and, and it's this, <laughs> uh, um, it's causes a sort of um, argument between two different people, both of whom one well one of whom wanted the clock, the other one, one inherited it from this distant great aunt who's this mysterious figure, and I felt with that one because. I felt the real emotions of it, and it did have that darkness and hauntingness to it that you described in her novels, I thought. Um, and I don't, I don't think they were fully rounded or fully in depth people, but I did get the, the fullness of the essential emotions that mattered for that story, i.e. that sort of envy and that her lack of memory about a traumatic thing that had happened, um, between them and, Essentially, yeah, the bits of their lives that mattered for that story, I thought were there, and I thought that worked. But was that one of the ones you didn't like? Yeah, I didn't like that one. Um, I got to the end and was like, really? Um, <laughs> the only one actually I enjoyed, and I think, oh, of course, um, I, it's just it didn't come to mind because it's not the title of my book, is The Demon Lover, which was the only one that I felt was a complete story and actually was, yeah, shocked yeah. me at the end. And I thought, oh, well, I was not expecting that. that that's good. Um, in fact, I thought both both collections had one story in that was so different from all the others, and that was that yes. the one in there. And I thought the flypaper. Yes, I was just about to say that yeah, exactly, exactly yeah. the same. That were that were that were actually quite horrible um, and disturbing. Whereas the others were, you know, they had the disturbing elements, but there was nothing particularly, you know, upsetting about them. I think um, another of the bones that I quite enjoyed was the pink may one about the woman who is um cheating on her husband and 
says that she saw a ghost and then really you're thinking well actually it's it's her conscience which was quite interesting i did like that one i liked because yeah she's coming up with all these reasons that a ghost had ruined her life and the person she's all in this conversation this person's like well what did you see what did you hear it's like nothing but and the the final line is essentially on the lines of um but there must have been a ghost because one doesn't just ruin one's own life does no and and i liked yeah and i also liked mysterious call the, the last one in the collection which um so that's someone bringing their their lover back to a flat share that she's in. Um, but yeah, there were some, particularly um, the Happy Autumn Fields. I think it was the one that stood out, and that I just I got to the end. It's like I've got no idea what that was about. It's yeah, just words. No, exactly. <laughs> I thought the same. I was like, am I being dense, or yeah. <laughs> is this really not really about anything in particular? I feel like that sometimes with Elizabeth Bone is that she's. I'm like, are you just really clever or <laughs> was there nothing to this? And I felt like with these stories, often with her books, I get to the end of them and think, okay, I need to sit and think about this for a while and then I'll be able to pull together the threads and be like, okay, yeah, no, I get it. Whereas with these stories, I just thought actually, like I said before, and, you know, I think your use of the term impressionistic is, is really useful for thinking about it. Mm. It's like they're smudges of stories they're like, mm-hmm. that she hasn't quite been able to pulled together into a painting if you see what i mean she's got some dots down there on the canvas but they don't quite all draw together into an image that that becomes something that's clear and and enjoyable and and for me i mean okay so maybe there were deeper depths to the stories that perhaps i was too dense to to drill down into but the reality is i don't think it should be that hard to find meaning and I mean, the dots are beautiful. Her, her sentences, there's yes. a lovely rhythm to seven. them. Yeah, it just, it, yeah, sometimes, well, at least for us, it just doesn't cohere. And then I think I think I was a little more successful um, or had a little more luck with it than, than you did. But oh, we should talk about The Demon Lover since that's the one that, that stood mm-hmm. out, um, which is, yeah, it's, it's much more of a traditional story in that you... I was going to say you know what's going on. You don't quite know what's going on, but yeah. <laughs> but it's I guess it's sort of a horror story, yeah, uh, a, a supernatural horror story. Uh, and yeah, I thought it was brilliant. It's about a lover who's coming back to to meet her after, after many years. And I won't say anything more than that. But um, yeah, I, I really I thought that the final image. Oh, from it's the horrifying! Story, horrifying! Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I thought it was brilliant, and it it really put chills down my spine. Um, I, yeah, I enjoyed that one very much and I was glad that it was there in the collection because I thought, oh, these are all a bit damn squib, really. Um, I think I felt the opposite in some ways and I thought, why is it in this collection? Because it's so different that it just, it makes everything else look very odd. And I thought, I, again, I thought it was really good, but it just didn't, it just felt so out of kilter with everything else in terms of style and structure and everything. Interesting. Yeah. Mm. And I was like, well, I'd like, I would read a whole, well, I, I don't read a whole collection of that sort of story, but, you know, something more along those lines. Yeah. And, and I know she does, has written quite a few ghost stories. So I just haven't read any of the other yeah. ones. So, so maybe, oh, sorry, there's a spoiler for that one. But um, <laughs> 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 we will come, I'm sure we'll come back, but let's, um, let's look at the Taylor stories in The Devastating Boys. Do you know what? I just loved every single one. I think oh, that wow. okay. Elizabeth Taylor is, such a talent i mean she not only writes incredible novels but she also manages to write complete worlds in her short Mm -hmm. stories of characters that are completely rounded of situations that are completely real and believable and just so beautifully and carefully crafted that you get to the end and 
you're you don't actually want anymore it's like it's just a perfect little nugget of a world that's presented to you and you're fully immersed in it for a few moments and then you're released from it and it's just wonderful and I was actually quite moved to tears I mean I'm, I'm, this is happening to me a lot lately when I'm reading <laughs> I'm obviously going through a phase but um tall boy I just found so moving and about I read that one a while ago remind me <laughs> okay so it's about um I'm just going to find it because I'm not remembering names um, because we've obviously read a lot of stories in a very short space yes. of time. It's <laughs> we should about, have said a one-two um, stories or something, shouldn't we? <laughs> yeah, a West, um, a West Indian boy called Jasper who's um, immigrated to to London and he's working, and um, but he hasn't really got any friends and he misses his family dress- desperately. And he's living in this sort of bed sit in some, like, Notting Hill or somewhere like that. And he hates the weekends because he's got nothing to do and no one to spend his time with. And it's just this heartbreaking thing. It's his birthday and he sends himself a card so that he's got something to to get on the day of his birthday to look forward to. And then on the day of his birthday, when um, at work it's the like the tradition in the office that the person who whose birthday it is buys the cakes for everybody. So he wears a fancy tie to work that day so that somebody will notice it and then he'll have the excuse to say, oh, it's my birthday present. So mm. people will know it's his birthday and he's able to buy them cakes because he wants to treat them. And it's just the most heartrending story about some I mean it's just the sad his sadness and his loneliness and the fact that nobody picks up on it or helps him and he's such mm. a happy person. Um and so the story does end on a note of hope which I, I really liked but at the same time it was just it just also made me think like loneliness is such a an awful thing and it's something that's completely relevant to to today and um yeah it just really touched me. Really touched mm-hmm. me. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, it should say that they both write stories that are more or less the same, similar, or the similar lens. Some of Taylor's are a bit shorter, but it's not like mm-hmm. they've gone very different on that. But I, I agree that she does make those worlds more immersive because in, in some levels, on some level, I found it maybe slightly less ambitious stylistically or, um, and some, she wasn't trying to do, I feel like maybe Bowen was trying to do something different with the sort of story and didn't quite work, or um, in some of them, and, and Taylor is a little more traditional, but I'm still an excellent writer, of course. Um, and yeah, there's, there were some I found similarly just really moving. I, I really like Sisters, which is about someone who's, mm. whose sister had written, um, who had become a successful writer writing childhood memoirs, and, and the sister in the story is, is very ashamed of her childhood being exposed in that way. Um, I thought, that um, I'm looking at the list. Um, a flesh was really. Um, well, I don't know if it was moving, but it was really. You really felt you were in those world. It was essentially a, a, an adulterous weekend between two strangers mm. or people who just met that weekend. But um, they're both getting on a bit. One of them is a is a martyr to gout, and one of them, um, you know, is just missing her husband and not quite sure what she's doing, etc. And it's. It's one, there's a few stories in there about people being miserable on holiday, in fact. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's, there's, there's a couple on their honeymoon who are miserable. There's a couple who meet this man who, um, is, no, who's lost his restaurant, etc. Uh, but yes, that one bit particularly, it's this, it's this crisis of, um, they're both hoping for something new and exciting, but they can't escape 
the the, the dullness of that, or the, or the you know the normal things they have to put up with, and it is it's not done. There's nothing particularly grand in these stories. There's not big moments where everything suddenly goes out. You know, there's sudden moments of drama, etc. It is just people coming to terms with the things that are happening in their everyday lives, um, or or not, not even realizing it's happening. Sometimes it's, it's the reader who's who's recognizing it and the people in it. In fact, in flesh, at the end, the the, the woman says to the man, "Oh, I'm, it's just as good as if we had had sex, essentially." <laughs> um, and that's the last line, and the, and it's just for the reader to think about all the the lost hope they have that you know what, what lives they're going back to. So there's not many that are particularly cheerful <laughs> in here. Um, no. In no. and out of the houses was all right. That was quite funny. That was about a, a maid who's essentially the or or a day a day maid, whatever. Whereas who is the means of communication for the whole village? But, um, Yes, a lot of somber things in here. Yes. Um, and then I thought the best one was the flypaper, which is so different from, again, so different from the others. It is essentially a horror story again. What did you think of that one? No, I found it really shocking. I mean, I've read this collection a long time ago, um, and I'd forgotten about it. And I was reading it, and I thought, oh, you know, oh, I'm so glad that she's met that woman. And then I got to the end, and I was like, oh. Yeah, I still don't um, want to say too much about it, but yeah, basically a little girl who is going off in town on her own for the, I don't know, and she's, you know, a bit worried about strangers. Maybe that's, we shouldn't say too much more about the actual what happens in it, but you can talk about the effect of it. I mean, it's it's shocking. I mean, really shocking, and a story that you're going to finish and think, you know, you're, you're going to keep thinking about it at the end. And I think she's really wonderful at doing that in these collections, that she's really good at, at creating characters in such a short space of time and with such a minimal amount of detail. So, you know, you learn about these characters in the story and, you know, you're lulled into a full sense of security. And I think she's also, I mean, I see what you mean about her being a, a more straightforward writer than Byrne, which I think she is, but I think mm-hmm. she also plays really well on... Um, our stereotypes and our our preconceptions and does a really good job of of twisting them mm-hmm. um and making you question your own view of the world and what you take for granted or what you don't necessarily um notice like a story another story like that that I really enjoyed was praises about um the closing down of this department store that's been open for years and the the main mm-hmm. character who's worked there forever and her life and she's sort of describing um the fact that it's her last day and then her last journey home and the fact that she'll never see any of these people again and she's looking at the world for the last time but as if it's for the first time and I really loved that notion of how little of our lives we notice and and really experience because they just become a routine and yeah yeah. and I think what she does really interestingly with structure in these stories is that the traditional short story often ends with the big moment or you mm. know some something in it is is the big ending whereas these it's quite often the important thing is what happens after the story finishes and you might not know what that is and um, particularly in the flypaper you don't know what it is and that's what makes it horrible mm. <laughs> um and but in some of them like praises or or like miss a miss m and sisters it, it, it is the sort of mundanity of what's going to follow the the inescapability of what's going to follow is um sort of just left hanging on the page and that I think she does really really cleverly and I and I didn't feel in the Bowen ones that I I don't think in any of them 
sort of the de- demon lover, I guess, but in the other ones, I wasn't particularly interested in what happened after what the page. Even the ones I did like, I just thought, well, that's the end. Whereas, yeah, but Taylor leaves, more or less all of them leaves you thinking about them. Mm. No, she's very good at doing that. And it's, for me, I think that she is, I think there's more to enjoy in her stories because you can understand them on every level. Oh, yeah, there's nothing confusing in them. No, I mean, there's a world that you can be drawn into, characters you can be drawn into, and a story that you can feel um, intrigued by and characters whose lives you want to be a part of, whereas I feel like Elizabeth Bowen's stories are more experiments in style and are designed to be clever rather than to be enjoyed. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I, as I say, I don't know anything about the writing of these stories. I don't know quite why she wrote them, but that's definitely the feeling I got from them. Um, yeah. How do you feel like Taylor's compared to her novels? Would you recognize them as the same author or do you think she does something different? I think she's very much the same author. I think she's the master of, um, stories about everyday life. I think she's uh, brilliant at capturing the often, I mean, in some cases, depressing realities of everyday life, but also the the funny moments, like the wonderful story um, in and out the houses, where you've got this girl Kitty who lives in a village and she goes into everybody's houses and and gossips about everyone, and then sets all the women of the village into a frenzy with their yeah, cooking yeah. because she's like, oh, well, such and such is having this for their dinner, and then, then someone else is like, well, I'm not going to be outdone by Mrs. Love. Yeah. I'm going to make this for my dinner tonight. Then they all get themselves exhausted and spending all their money on these ridiculous meals that their husbands don't actually want. Um, and so I think you know a lot of her novels are quite melancholy um, and mm-hmm. and dark in some way, but they're also kind of a bit Barbara Pimish without the humour um, in the sense that they they never leave a bad taste in the mouth I don't think Yeah I agree with you that it definitely seems very much the same author and the same sort of look out on life and I think in fact in some of her novels there are sections that would work as short stories I think mm-hmm. the opening of that Mrs Lippincott's could be a short story in itself just as she's oh, walking yeah. around the house and there's bits of um, I think it was the Soul of Kindness, maybe, where it, which felt very like a little short story. And indeed, uh, View of the Harbour is more or less just lots of short stories of different people put together. And I know that structurally yeah. and all that sort of thing, it's not, not quite the same. But it did feel like the same understanding of a, a group of characters. And I think it's very impressive that she's able to do that on such a small scale. And for me, in fact, I think Bowen, I would recognise her as the same author of, of the novels, although I've only read two of her novels. It's just that I think she needs that whole novel to build up a portrait um to that's how she writes best and, and, and it's in her novels i've have found quite impressionistic in a similar way but because it's so many different dots and stripes and you know paintbrushes marks all over it um it coheres better than it when if it's just 20 pages that don't quite seem to hang on to anything yeah well it sounds like we both have the same favorite of these two although i should say i did i, I didn't I don't think I loved the Taylor as much as you did. I certainly prefer her novels to her short stories, but I did prefer the Taylor to the Bowen. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was, I mean, it was disappointing actually because, uh, I mean, I was expecting to absolutely love the Bowen short stories and I was looking forward to seeing how she, how she kind of transferred between the two forms. But yeah, so for me, it was, 
there's the tone of all the way and it's actually made me want to now I could easily have just sat and read that entire volume of short stories everyone was fascinating and has made me actually kind of want to go back and reread all my Elizabeth Taylor so there you are yay wonderful yeah great um lovely so let us know if you've read these and what you think and if we're ter- terribly wrong about either of them yeah <laughs> but we have been a complete agreement today so there you oh go. that's nice isn't it's it nice. <laughs> Um, and what are we reading in the next episode, Rachel? Well, we if we can, I can get around to reading fast enough. Um, two novels by Edward Carey, so Little, as as we've mentioned, the novel about Mary Tussaud, um, and then another of his novels is Alva and Irva. That's right, yeah. Which is you've already read, so I don't. I, yeah, I will be rereading it because it's been quite a long time. Yeah. But um, but yes, they're going are, quite modern. Going we quite are modern. going quite modern, but um. I'm just aware that if you wanted to read along with us, I think they are the certainly Alva and Irva might be a bit tricky to get hold of, but I think it's available on Kindle. I think yes, it's out of print. Oh, is it? Yes. Hopefully, you'll be able. To, oh, that's not a first for us, though. Is okay. it? <laughs> and little came out this year, so it might only be in hardback. But hopefully, you can get one from the library or on ebook or something. It's, um, it was like simultaneously published in both, so it should. Oh, was it? Oh, great. Okay. It was. Yeah, I've got the hardcover because it's um the the hard, the paperback is white, which I always think why I'm going to get that filthy in two minutes. So it's true. I I do have the paperback, which because it was a review copy, but it is tatty and battered by the time you finished with it. Um, yeah, so we will speak to you then. Thanks for yeah. listening, everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.